18 to 20, first of all. <clears throat> the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now can you turn back to um, Acts chapter 17, page 784. Acts chapter 17, page 784. Well, I'm going to read from verse 24. So, um, and that's on 784. No, it's not. I feel uh, very sheepish. <laughs> Sorry. 783 stand corrected verse 24 the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And now turn forward to Colossians chapter 1, which is on page 832, I think. Colossians 1. Page 832. And reading from verse 16. The hymn referred to in the first three words is Jesus. So I'm going to use Jesus' name here. Verse 16. For by Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And the final reading is John chapter 1, page 748, John chapter 1. 
page 748. first three words at the beginning of John's Gospel, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Well, this is the word of God to us this morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I need to, a couple of volunteers, if possible, if this is going to work well. You know, those three, uh, four Bible readings we just had, it would be really useful if we had four volunteers, one with a finger in each. So I need somebody with a finger in Romans chapter one. Who's going to do that, please? Who's going to do that, please? Matty's got that one. Acts chapter 17. Who's going to do that? Thank you. Frank, you got Acts 17, yeah? Good. Uh, somebody help Frank find Acts 17. That'd be great. Uh, next up was uh, Colossians chapter 1. Who's going to get that? Andrea. And then John chapter 1. Who's going to get that? Thank you, Dean. Brilliant. Okay. Lovely. Let's pray, shall we? Uh, Lord, we, we're gathering here to recognise that you are the Lord, but we realise that you have granted to us a faith that is more than robust enough to face the toughest of questions. We pray that with great humility, we would learn from you and your word and from science too, to make sense of who you are better, to adore you, to recognise you. Would you build us up in our faith and confidence that your message is true? Lord, for areas where we have doubts or questions, please build us up. Uh, Give us confidence to speak to our friends and the people that we speak to about you, perhaps people who are are cynical or or doubting. Lord, would you help us to develop some words and and to learn ways that we can present you with great confidence to needy souls. So, Lord, thank you for this little bit of time together. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I like science, <laughs> and our t- title today is uh, "Hasn't Science Disproved God?" Uh, maybe many of you don't know this. I've actually got a degree in material science. I married somebody who has got a degree in biochemistry. My father-in-law has got a PhD in biochemistry. My mother-in-law has got a degree in science. My sister-in-law has got a PhD in science from Cambridge. And my brother-in-law has got a PhD in science from Cambridge. All of whom believe in the Lord, the God of the Bible. Have we all missed a trick? Because isn't it possible that science has disproved God? We're just weirdos then, aren't we? I don't know whether you know this or not, but in 1969, the chief topical magazine of the day in the United States was Time magazine, and it ran a front cover that said this in big, bold letters, Is God dead? And it was a really good question of the time, because... um, uh, Well, it was a very respectable article that talked about the fact that there had been great jumps forward in the scientific method and scientific discovery. We heard a little bit about that from Joe. Uh, And there is something incredibly good about science, isn't there? The scientific method, it's about open questions, it's about transparency, it's about honesty, 
It's about free inquiry. It's about putting off our own assumptions, even our dogma. It's about putting off any claims of distortion. It's about pursuing the truth about how the world um, works, how it ticks, what we can learn from that, and how we can harness that for the good of humanity, uh, for the inquiry of purpose, uh, and for the development of technology. That's what science is about. Is God dead? Because, well, for so long, so many of the questions of how the world worked were being answered by this simple word, God, that you just fitted in where you didn't know the answer to how things were worked, how things worked. So now it seems that as science developed, it got to the end of the 1960s, well, we, d- we didn't have any need for angels to push the planets around because our scientific assumption was that that was what the angels were, were there to do. They pushed the planets around, but now we've got the laws uh, of Newtonian um, physics and cosmology, so he sort of replaced the need for the supernatural there. Uh, there's no need anymore for the creation of the species because we've got this dude called Darwin who, pre- who presented an alternative theory. There's no need for the divine spark because, well, our growth in our understanding of biochemistry shows us how even complex amino acids seem to be able to develop in space. Therefore, I'm sure it's not too much of a, limp to, uh, a leap to assume that a divine spark could actually have come from within chemistry itself. We've got no need for a creator of matter because physics seems to be leading us down the path to suggest that there's ways almost of spontaneous um, uh, a, a creation of matter with, 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 with particles that, that seem to come in and out of existence. And then we've got no need for the creation of the universe as a whole because cosmology's got all kinds of theories as to how that may, may have happened. Is God dead? And maybe you felt the pressure on that. So, so often it was viewed that God was used and seen to explain what we see. So now that we can better explain what we can see, we don't need him anymore on any of that primitive nonsense. The God of the gaps is just not needed. Now it's gone a little bit deeper as well because uh, P.S. Williams, who's a philosopher of science, he's noted that at a deep popular level, and perhaps you've seen this as you've spoken with people, Science now has not just moved to a point where it can tell us how things in the natural world work, how to manipulate them, how to develop them into technology, but there's sort of an assumption that science exclusively leads to all forms of knowledge. So unless you can test it and measure it, you can't be sure that it exists. That's where it's gone to, and that's, that's, that's something called naturalism that is sinking in more and more and more that assumes the only way to look at the world is through the assumption uh, of energy and matter, things that can be touched, tasted, and there's an automatic assumption that anything else, well, you can't be sure of. It's sort of, it'll be blind faith. Um, Yeah, you can't be sure of it at all. So perhaps you feel it when you get comments like that. Hasn't science disproved God? Who's had a discussion with somebody, uh, maybe in recent times, maybe a bit further in the back, where just the assumption that you've got is that, well... You know, science has got better answers than religion. Uh, anybody had conversations with people about that? Brilliant. Thank you for putting your, putting your hands up. Put your hands down a second. And I, I want to say that's a brilliant question to be asked. Some people ask it genuinely. Um, plenty think that science can prove answers to almost anything. And to somebody who genuinely asks the question about that, maybe the way that you want to go is to say, well, there's a whole stack of things that we know are real or part of reality that science certainly cannot prove and certainly can't give us any answers to. So, for example, existence. Science can't prove your existence. 
Science is unable to prove that there is any other mind other than yours. It just can't do it. Science can't prove that there was a past, and science can't prove that this external world is real. For all you know, you could be in the matrix. And science can't prove otherwise that it's not just you in some crazy mad dream going off. Okay? What else can't science prove? Well, science can't, science can't prove or sit in judgment over things that are beautiful. Imagine if you got a Valentine's card from a scientist who simply says something along the lines of, as I look at you, I feel the random um, firing of certain synapses and my genetic programming drawing me in your direction that there may be a further flourishing of the species. Would you feel loved? No, science can't account for love and beauty. Science can't prove morality or ethics. Science can wonderfully teach us how we can develop nuclear physics to the point where we can create a very, very, very big and dangerous explosion. But science can't tell you the rights and wrongs of setting that explosion off in a populated area, i.e. a nuclear bomb. Science can't help you with ethics, although there are some scientists now who are moving to a point of suggesting that there is a scientific method to get there, but what they find themselves doing is slipping back into the philosophy, uh, philosophy which we can talk to Dean about a little bit later on. Science, and here's the killer, science can't prove itself because there are some unprovable assumptions that you need to have in place to be able to follow a scientific method of inquiry, logic, Mathematics are presupposed. The theory of relativity itself assumes the speed of light is constant, and that's just not provable. So there's plenty of ways in which science can't answer loads of questions. But I suppose you're probably already aware of all of that. So that's somebody who's coming with a genuine question. But what about the, the other person who's almost saying, hasn't science disproved God? And the, and the tone with which they're saying it is quite dismissive. What do they mean when they say that? I think what they mean is that science looks at fact and evidence, which, hurrah, that's what it's supposed to do. You're talking about faith with no supporting evidence or in spite of the evidence. That's blind faith, which basically means you religious people are nutters, gullible, dogmatic and stupid. Do you understand? So this language has been brought in, particularly by some of the books by recent um, sort of aggressive naturalist atheists like the likes of Dawkins uh, or Hitchens, that faith simply in their definition is um, belief in something that is incredibly, uh, uh, something that is supernatural without any supporting evidence whatsoever. So what's my experience? Maybe yours when you, you know, for those of you who put your hands up and you've had that discussion, it goes something like this. They look at you and they think his or her faith is simply believing something ridiculous with no supporting evidence. Do you see? So sometimes when we're, when we're having that question, hasn't science disproved God? That, that, that's just the assumption that's going on. So I don't know how you felt like that. I wonder whether you felt like an idiot. I wonder whether you felt like it's not even worth arguing. I, I, I wonder whether you felt quite often like me. You felt, well... I know that what they're saying isn't quite true, but I haven't got a clue as to what the arguments are to bring back. Well, listen, let me start in one place. Um, something that's not often spoken about. I said in, uh, which year was it that that Time magazine article, God is, uh, is, is, God, um, uh, is God dead? Can you remember what year it was? 1969. And just a few years later, I haven't got the year, you can go look it up on Google, that's what Google's for. A few years later, the same magazine 
ran another cover story, big letters, saying this. Is God coming back to life? Why would they do that article? Answer, in the last 50 years of science, science, scientific discovery has been opening up more and more questions, realising its own limitations, and there's become a flourishing dialogue between science and theology, between this, this pursuit of answers as to how things work and, and natural processes and what, what the, the things that we're learning, and, and the fact that that's leading to bigger questions about um, who we are, why we're here, how did it come to pass? You see, science can answer the how quite often, but they can't answer the why or the who. And there was even Time magazine, a secular magazine, saying, this is a really exciting dialogue that's beginning to come to pass. The evidence is pointing more and more towards an immaterial, powerful mind that looks suspiciously like the God of the Bible... Science can disprove certain religious claims. So over the history of the world, there are certain um, religious myths from different places around the world that have been disproven. We have finally managed to conclude that there is no such thing as Mount Olympus with big gods on top of it chucking down. You know, so science can disprove certain things. But here's the exciting thing for us, is that science can verify what we already know to be true in the Bible. Let me have a little think, but in order for me to be able to take you through this, I need to bring you a little bit of a, an illustration uh, that I've stolen from a guy called uh, Lennox, who is a mathematics uh, professor and person who's, who's debated with the likes of Dawkins and Hitchens before he died. Um, he, he talks about a Model T Ford. Do you remember that old original car from the 1920s? Uh, we actually got to to go in one when we were over in the States. Friends of ours had got one, and they took us around the block in this Model T Ford. So you look at this Model T Ford, this very basic and primitive old-fashioned car, and you ask the question, what accounts for the car? What accounts for the Model T Ford? And depending on who, who, who was there, you know, you're sort of saying, well, was it created, um, or does it depend on the laws of internal combustion engine? It, 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 what, what accounts for this car? Is it Henry Ford or the laws of the internal combustion engine? What's the answer? What's the answer? Both. Okay, that's the first time, only time you're allowed to shout out, I only take hands up. Uh, no. Answer, both, isn't it? It was created, but at the same time, there's an understanding about how it works, and if it didn't have a way of working, it wouldn't exist. Simple as that. In fact, you could argue that the more that you study the way that the car works, the more that you can learn about the designer, the creator. It points to being designed and it points to being created. That's what it seems that the scientific endeavour is doing more and more at the current time. Now imagine a scientist or a mechanic comes along, looks under the bonnet and says, I can't see Henry Ford under there. What's wrong with that scientist or that mechanic's logic? They're expecting to find the creator and the designer inside of his creation and design. But he's outside of it, isn't he? He's cre created it. Now, why is that important, you say, Steve? Well, here's why it's important. Because there's a number of uh, scientists who are very good at their science, but the place where they start from is the assumption that there isn't anything outside the natural world. 
I think Joe alluded to that. He alluded to the fact that there's, there's just the assumptions that all there is is the physical, the measurable, and you start from a starting place of nothing outside of it. So what would you say to the mechanic or the scientist who says, I don't see Henry Ford under there? It's obvious he's not there. He's not part of the car, but he created and is outside of it. When you're looking at the engine, you are looking at how it works. That's the scientific method. So what is the scientific method? I could test Joe right now, but I'm not going to. First of all, you observe something. You hypothesize about what's actually happening and going on. Then you experiment to test whether you were right. You collect data. You make a conclusion. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again until you are able to establish what is fact. Because they're uh, reproducible data on how things work okay now you can do all of that under the hood uh, or under the bonnet of a model t ford to figure out how it works but it won't say much about the creator sorry it won't it won't tell you whether or not there is a creator there it might give a bit of an indication as to what that creator is like so what we need to do is, is, is understand two different types of science one type of science is what's called empirical science which is what i just explained where it's based on reproducible results testing things again and again and again then there's something called forensic science which is about looking at things that have probably happened or may well happen within the natural world and trying to use your empirical understanding apply some of the principles to make judgments about things that you cannot actually test i.e. the past and the future and, and, and you supporting evidence from what you know about the now to help you make decisions and make, make choice about what happened in the past and what's happened uh, increasingly is that some parts of si uh, the scientific community, not all of them, have been so excited about what they've seen and tested in the here and now, and they've thought about how it might work to the past or the future, and they've started to almost communicate that with the same level of certainty between here. They've applied um, uh, stuff that they've learned here, created theories, and almost sold the theories as fact like those things are. Do you see that? And so what do we learn? We get to learn about the designer, but we need to know the difference between empirical science and forensic science. For a, a, an atheistic scientist to say, I can disprove the existence of God, is as daft as saying that a mechanic who knows really well about how the car works, really good mechanic or really good scientist, saying, I can disprove the existence of Henry Ford. You can't from within the system. You just cannot. You can see how it works and look for evidences as to where it came from. Um, but if you start from a point of view of this is all there is, you're not going to get much further. But if you stand back and say, we've started somewhere, let's find out what the insides tell us about the one who made it. Now that's the claim of the Bible. So who's got the Romans chapter 1 bit? The Romans chapter 1 bit. Somebody read verses 19 and 20, just verses 19 and 20. Okay, so what the Bible claims is that, that God is outside of the universe, but he has made the universe in such a way 
as it makes plain certain characteristics about him. That's what the Bible says. Okay. Next, Acts chapter uh, one, verse uh, sorry, seventeen, verses twenty-four to twenty-eight. I think Frank, were you going to read that for us? Are you in the right place, mate? Start reading at verse twenty-four for us, if you would. Have you got where that is? That's it, if you can, mate. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples but by but by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breathe and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should in, inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men should seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Brilliant. And that's your first Bible reading church, mate. You did it really, really well. Thank you very much for that. Did you pick that bit up there? That God is at not inside the world, he's outside the world, and he's made and created in such a way that we reach out for him. That's what the Bible claims. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse uh, 16 through to 20. Can somebody read that for us? Brilliant, that's exactly right, that's just spot on, that's fine for us. Okay, so that's the claim of the Bible, and that always has been the claim of the Bible. Uh, but the question is, is, is modern science saying the same thing? Or is modern science saying something different? Now, on one level, I need to just say this. On one level, science never says anything. Scientists do. You get that? So science is a method by which you try to establish evidence. What scientists do is they try to interpret the evidence and create repeatable, as honestly as they possibly can, uh, and make conclusions. Okay? But what is modern science as a whole currently saying at the moment? Well, I want to just focus in on two areas because we, we, we haven't got time to do more. I'd love to do more. Okay? Let's talk about the area of cosmology. Uh, that's sort of your department, isn't it? So cosmology is about the cosmos. You get that? Okay? It's the study of origins. And increasingly over the last 50 years, you've got more and more, in fact, the vast majority of the scientific community will declare, virtually all scientists believe that there was a sudden and dramatic start to the cosmos. What do we call that? The Big Bang, okay? The Big Bang. And a number of scientists has immediately come up and said, well, that's a problem, isn't it? Well, I want to say that's only a problem uh, if you're an atheist because of the laws of logic. What do the laws of logic say? The laws of logic say this, that whatever, um, whatever begins to exist has a cause. So can you think of anything that has existed that you've ever known that hasn't had a cause? I mean, the obvious example in our house is when Jane comes running in and goes, there's a mess. What's the next thing she says? Who did it? Usually the answer's pretty obvious, but that's, that's, that's more. Everything we know, okay, has, everything that has happened, everything that exists has some sort of cause behind it. Everything, okay? 
And now scientists, though for a while there's question as to whether or not they thought the, the universe, the, the cosmos was, was um, eternal, now they've pretty much concluded it did have a beginning. And if it had a beginning, it must have had a cause. And the cause must have been outside of it. Otherwise, that would have been the beginning, if that makes sense. Do you see how that works? So whatever cause, some people said, well, maybe the cause was gravity. Well, in that case, who caused? Well, gravity existed, so who caused the gravity? You always get to a point where you're like, where did it start? It has to have a cause. Okay. So, first point of logic is, whatever begins to exist has to have a cause. Everything. Okay. Second obvious thing is, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the conclusion is, the universe has a cause outside of itself. Do you get that? What kind of cause? Well, let's think about the description of what kind of cause. This cause must be uncaused. I.e., it was eternal, always there. Otherwise, it would have been at a cause. It was uncaused. Second of all, it must be immaterial. Because the very nature of the universe is material that includes energy, uh, laws, time and space. Here is something that is immaterial outside of energy, material, time and space. Here is something, it must be eternal because it created time. Um, It must be creative in nature because it made a decision to create. It must be incredibly clever. And part of that is going to be one of the things that we look at in a little while, which is the, uh, the complexity of the universe. It must be incredibly powerful. Now, we could do all kinds of statistics in terms of how powerful the stars are, but I don't need to stand here and tell you, very, 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 very big boom. Okay? Very big boom. Very powerful. And it must be personal, because it had a will with intention and agenda. It made a decision. Now, that description, ring any bells? Oh, that's all we can know by looking at the evidences from an origin. But it sounds to me like a bit of a photo fit of somebody who's been being talked about for a long, long time. So that's the argument from cosmology. That's what modern science is saying. How about an argument from physics? Okay, physics. For those of you who are physically physically inclined, physically inclined... This is, we're going to look at the argument from fine-tuning, or for those of you who are doing uh, A-level, it's the teleological, the argument from design, teleological uh, argument, okay? Recently, and increasingly, scientists have been utterly stunned by the delicate and precise balance of conditions that were required for the cosmi- uh, cosmos to form and for life to form in the universe. Constants and numbers conspire together to create an environment in which life can survive and which, in which the actual universe could actually be. So imagine if you would, say, 50 massive big dials in the sky that are all the variables that have to be twisted. You have to twist all the dials right to be able to get the, the universe to, to exist and to not sort of implode and to get life to be able to exist. Big 50, now now let's just take one of those dials, just one of the 50, okay? Gravity. Now gravity is incredibly fine-tuned. So I want you to use your imagination for a second, and I want you to imagine that uh, there is a ruler from one side of the universe to the other. 
Now that's measured not in distance, but in light years. 15 billion light years from one side to the other. That's how long it, okay. 15 billion light years. Now that is the range of the force of gra- possible ranges of the force of gravity. It could be anything in, across that ruler of 15 billion light years. By the way, I seem to, I, I looked this up yesterday. I think a light year is six, hold on, let me get this. Is it, is it six trillion miles? Is that right? I think it's something like six trillion miles. And in a, in a mile is 63,000 inches. So that ruler is made up of 15 billion times 6 trillion times 63,000 inches. Okay? Possible ranges that gravity could be measured in. If you moved gravity, the value of gravity, one inch, just one inch along that ruler, the universe wouldn't exist. That's one of the dials. One of them. Just one. What about something Joe will tell you loads about? Cosmological constant. Is that sort of getting you all excited, just me using those words? So I had to get Joe excited. Just go up to me later and go, cosmological constant. Okay. So cosmological constant has to be exact or the universe doesn't exist. If it's too small, too large, the universe collapses. Okay. It is fine-tuned, apparently, um, to one to one part in something like 10 to the... 60, which is basically like this. It is like standing on the moon and throwing a dart from the moon to the earth, not to hit the earth, that would be hard enough, not to hit uh, a country on the earth, that would be ridiculously hard, not to hit a person on the earth, not to hit a person's cell of which you've got, I don't know, how is it something like 10 trillion, uh, no, a gajillions of cells in your body, not to hit one of those cells, but to hit one of the atoms that you were aiming at in one of your cells, in one person, in one country, on our planet, from the moon, with a dart. Okay, that's the cosmological constant. There's another one of the dials. If that was out by one little bit, doesn't happen. Fine-tuned, okay? And this is leaving some scientists who don't have a problem with who God is, unsurprised. But it's leaving some people really, really surprised. I could talk about other things like countless other dials, like the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force. But it's just mind-boggling precision. All the dials and all of them together so that the chance that the universe would be as it is at the moment is 10 to the 120. That's 10 with 120 noughts on the back end of it. That's a lot. So Vera Kistakowski, who is the former professor of physics at MIT, the, the, the exclusive university of science over in the States. She's also former president of the Association of uh, Women in Science. She said this, The exquisite order displayed by our scientific understanding of the physical world calls for the divine. Some of you will have heard of a guy called Sir Anthony Flew. Uh, he was described as the world's most notorious atheists. Through the 60s, 70s, 80s, he was writing left, right and centre books to try to promote atheism. Uh, he, he, he was a philosopher and a philosopher of science. Uh, but a few years ago, he shocked the planet. He said, 
as he reevaluated the scientific evidence on tap, he said, oops, I was wrong. That's almost the equivalent of the Pope saying he's an atheist. It was that big. So Lee Strobel, a guy who's uh, an apologist uh, who tries to get, help people think through the, the confidences we've got in our faith, uh, he tried to get in touch with Sir Anthony Flew, and he sat him down and the first question was, please, in one sentence, summarize your reason for why you uh, have decided not to be an atheist and a theist. He hasn't become a Christian, he just believed that there was an intelligent, uh, immaterial, uh, very powerful mind behind everything, and he said this, the integrated complexity of the biological world, which we haven't even talked about yet today. We've only talked about the cosmological world and the physical world. We haven't even talked about DNA. We could be here for quite a long time doing that. So he then wrote a book called There is a God and talked about an infinite intelligence who creates all these intricate laws. That's Sir Anthony Flew. Uh, what about the atheist, astronomer and cosmologist Fred Hoyle? He was the Nobel laureate. As he's looked at this growing evidence over the last few decades, he said this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces in, uh, no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. So what about you? I don't know about you, but I'd love to meet Henry Ford, wouldn't you? What a great car. Haven't gone around the block, a brilliant car. I'd love to meet the designer of that almost epoch-defining, century-defining bit of technology. I'm guessing there are plenty of science, scientists and plenty of just ordinary ones of us who'd love to meet the one who created and designed, wound up and oversees the world that we know at the moment. And you realise that in the Bible, that is on offer. There's a, a guy called Robert Jastrow. He's an astrophysicist and he wrote in the New York Times. Speaking of it, I don't know where he's at in terms of his faith. He says this, My fear is that for the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. What's he saying? If you aren't prepared to doubt your doubts and be sceptical about your scepticism when it comes to the scientific method and, and naturalism, what happens when the abundant evidence of science of a creator, of fine-tuning, of an intelligent mind, get overwhelming, you have to capitulate, and there's people like Steve standing there going, I've been telling you all the time. I think there'd be a certain tragedy in that, wouldn't there? Because it would mean that what's happened is you've missed out on the opportunity to know the one who said, I've done it this way that you might reach out to me. He's the uncaused causer. Isn't that what we heard in John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3? Who's got that to read? Go for it, Dean. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. With God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. And that's Jesus. 
And then he's not just that, though. He's the immaterial one who is outside of space-time history. But we just finished celebrating Christmas. And he's the one who, though all that power is his, he becomes material. He puts on a skin. And he comes and he steps into space-time history, into planet Earth... Yeah, wow, eternity contracted to a span, inexplicably made man. He's available to each one of us. It's Jesus. He's eternal. He's creative. He is relational. He is powerful. He is wise. He is personal. Somebody read again for us Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Hear what this Jesus has done and is doing. Stop there. He's made absolutely everything. And what is he doing with what he's made as they as what he's made has walked away from him? Go on, Andrea. Keep going. He's bringing people to himself. So I think we've got a really exciting task. For those of us here who are believers, we've got this exciting task of inviting people who have an instinct that you should make choices on the basis of reasonable and credible evidence to say that the reasonable and credible evidence isn't pushing us away from God, it's driving us towards him. What's more, not just any old God, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. Of course, you'll bump into some people and you'll be able to find out straight away whether or not it's really evidence that is causing them to not want to have faith. So if you say to somebody and you go something like this, if I could prove to you with certainty that Jesus is that God and that you need him, would you become a Christian? If there is even a moment's hesitation in them answering yes, then you know that the problem isn't here. The problem's here. It's not an intellectual one. It's here. It's that actually sometimes we don't want to have to sit under the the fact that this God is who he says he is, can do what he says he can do, and has the authority he has. So our job, with real uh, and honest humility, is to go with confidence to people, help them to show, no, it's not that science has disproved God, quite the opposite. It's helping more and more people get confidence that he is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. And we do it prayerfully, knowing that we need God to be involved, working in people's hearts. Let's pray before we sing. Lord, we thank you so much that because men and women of old knew that you had created this world, they developed the scientific method to explore what you have created, work out how it works, serve mankind, serve your purposes, further technology. We praise you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that that science is not a human idea, but your idea. It reflects your character, and we love that. And we pray, Lord, that as we as we learn more as a as humanity, as we learn more as as individuals that you would be driving us more and more to see your hand at work Uh, we praise you for those brave christian scientists who in the face of often ridicule uh, are standing up and taking a stand and saying look where the evidence is leading 
They're doing the hard work of thinking things through. With grace and gentleness, they're commending Jesus Christ as the one who makes sense of everything that we see in the natural world. We pray, Lord, for our friends and our families who perhaps have doubts around this. Would you help us to be a real help to them, that they may think it through and find you at the end of their inquiry? Lord, help us to build our confidence to speak up, for you are more than credible. You are just awesome. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.